This episode is a sermon by Reverend Martin Lindsay titled Be Kind and Be Lost. It's based on Matthew chapter 4. And in the sermon, Reverend Lindsay discusses the meaning of the words repent and good news and what it means to hope that the kingdom of God is drawing near. People living in eastern Ukraine have reacted to the Russian invasion in a variety of ways. A woman named Galina Danilchenko, an accountant at a tractor parts factory in the city of Melitopol, saw opportunity knocking when the Russians invaded. Uh, Danilchenko had served on the city council in Melitopol. She represented a pro-Russian political party in eastern Ukraine. And when Russian troops captured the city, they forced the mayor of the city to resign, and they installed Danilchenko in his place. And the first thing that she did was she fired the rest of the city council members and appointed pro-Russian citizens who were loyal to her to replace them. She's in good shape, except not so much these days, because now Danilchenko can no longer go about freely in public because of the risk of assassination attempts. And she's been sanctioned by the U.S. government. She was the first woman to be sanctioned, or first man or woman to be sanctioned by the U.S. after the war broke out. And uh, she's been accused by, of treason and is under indictment for treason by the Ukrainians. The former mayor, uh, who aids Ukrainian partisans in the East, predicts that she will come to a bad end no matter what. Either she'll be executed by the Ukrainians, he says, or she'll be murdered by her Russian friends because she knows too much. As he puts it, there's just no future in collaborating with the enemy. Now, that's one uh, example. Uh, there are other examples as well. Uh, one is the case of Olesky, a mechanic from the eastern city of Izium. He fled the fighting there when the war broke out, uh, settled in a village further to the west, but the Russians occupied that village as well, and so he stayed there with people that he was living with. And he and the people that he lived with uh, took to flying a Ukrainian flag from the uh, clothesline in their backyard. And the Russians repeatedly warned them to take the flag down, but they refused to take the flag down. It was a small but risky act of defiance against the Russian occupation. And when the town was retaken this fall, the Ukrainian troops told Oleski when they saw the flag flying, you guys are fearless, because they'd seen what had happened to other people who had resisted the Russians in the war. And he responded, we never doubted that you would return. So some people living in eastern Ukraine uh, have you know, defied the Russian occupation with these kind of small symbolic acts, uh, but risky acts. Others have defied the occupation in much more risky ways. Uh, there are partisans in eastern Ukraine who have supplied the Ukrainian military with intelligence that the Ukrainian military has used to target Russian assets uh, far in the rear. And Ukrainian partisans have also taken it uh, to themselves to blow up bridges, to blow up railroad tracks, uh, and even to assassinate collaborators in the East. There's one particularly uh, chilling story about a, a pro-Russian political leader who was poisoned. It's cloak and dagger stuff that I don't have time to get into. But as I've watched uh, reports from Ukraine over the last year, I've often wondered to myself, what would I do if I were in an extreme situation like that? What would I do if my country were invaded and occupied 
by a foreign power. I wonder, would I or could I be bribed or bullied into collaborating? You know, I, I think all of us would like to think of ourselves that we would never do something like that. But, you know, you never really know what your price is until you're put in a situation like that. Or maybe I would be a partisan. Maybe I'd be running around blowing up bridges and uh, railroad trestles and risking my life uh, to liberate the, the land. Or maybe I would uh, resist the occupation with uh, a smaller symbolic act of resistance, like flying the flag. Or maybe I would just keep a low profile, you know, keep my nose down, don't look up, go along to get along until the whole sordid affair sorts itself out and we know what the foreseeable future is going to hold. I don't know. The thing is, we don't have to wonder how we would act in a situation like that because that is already the situation we find ourselves in, according to the Gospel lesson. The Gospels testify that we live under enemy occupation. But word has come to us that a counteroffensive is underway that will liberate the land and restore it to its rightful sovereign. In fact, we can already say that victory is ours. And now we have to decide whose side are we on. We have to declare ourselves. Who will we serve? That's the deep meaning of the gospel reading from Matthew this morning. It's the meaning that may be obscured by the way that we tend to translate some words in this passage. And it may be obscured by layer after layer of traditional interpretation. So what I want to do this morning is peel back some of those layers and explore some of the meaning of key words in this passage to illuminate that deeper meaning. And the words that I want to invite you to pay closer attention to are the words and phrases repent for the kingdom of heaven is drawn near and the term good news that you've heard in the passage of scripture this morning. And then after that, I want to reflect with you a little bit about what it might mean to be a partisan or to be a collaborator in the conflict that is going on around us. So first of all, uh, let's take this word good news uh, that we hear so much when we're in church. The Greek word for good news is evangelion. And it's the, where the, we get the word evangelist uh, from the word evangelion. So an evangelist proclaims evangelion, the good news. An evangelist comes preaching good news. But in the ancient world, the world in which Matthew wrote his gospel, the world in which Jesus lived uh, amongst us, the Evangelion wasn't just any sort of good news. It wasn't good news that you'd won the lottery or good news that uh, you'd lost another 10 pounds since you made that New Year's resolution. It was and it wasn't religious good news. It wasn't good news that God has forgiven you, although God has forgiven us. It was news of victory. That's what Evangelion meant. News of victory on the battlefield. And an evangelist was a messenger that was sent from the battlefield to the capital to inform the king or the emperor or the citizens of that city that victory had been achieved on the battlefield. So when Matthew says that Jesus went about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, what he means is that Jesus was telling anybody who would listen to him Heaven has stormed the gates of hell. God has defeated the devil. Good 
has conquered evil. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's the content of Jesus' message. That is Jesus' good news to the people of Galilee. Jesus would also tell anyone who would listen to him, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Now, kingdoms and nations in this world will often forge closer ties through the exchange of uh, trade, through the signing of treaties, through the exchange of diplomats and, and state visits as sovereigns visit one another. But kingdoms themselves draw near by territorial expansion. And in the history of the world, that has often come through conquest. So here's the good news according to Jesus. The long-awaited counteroffensive to free the world from the enemy has commenced. The enemy will no longer rule this world because the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. Now, if you've been listening carefully, uh, you might be wondering, well, which is it? Has victory been achieved already? Is the battle won? Or is it yet to be achieved? Is it still unfolding? Is it are we still waiting for it to actually happen? Well, there's a French theologian from the last century named Oscar Colmont, and he argued that it was both. The victory has already been achieved, and yet the victory is still to come. And he used the uh, example of the D-Day landings in Normandy as a kind of metaphor for how God is transforming the world. He said, when the Allies established a beachhead, on those five beaches in Normandy on June 6, 1944, the war was, for all intents and purposes, over. The Nazi regime would never be able to win a two-front victory in Europe. And yet, many, many months of hard fighting were still in store for the Allies until someone could pronounce victory in Europe. And that is kind of the way it is with the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's beachhead in a world that is under enemy occupation. Victory is certain because he is here, because he has been raised from the dead. But much struggle remains. Now, in announcing this victory, which is both uh, already and not yet, Jesus says there's only one thing to do to respond to this news of victory, and that is to repent, uh, to do a kind of grown-up version of the hokey pokey. Um, in Hebrew, the language of Jesus' Bible, the word for repent is to turn. Uh, it means, it, it, literally in Hebrew, it's shuv. And it can also mean, as we're learning in our Wednesday book club, to return, or better yet, to come home. The good news prompts us to remember who this world in which we live really belongs to. And it also prompts us to remember who is the rightful sovereign of this world and invites us to live even now while we're still to a certain extent behind enemy lines in loyalty to, to that one and no longer go along to get along, much less collaborate with the enemy. For there is no future for collaborators. For as it is written elsewhere in Scripture, the wages of sin is death. Now, repentance, or turning around, or coming home in response to this good news takes many forms. Um, one form of repentance is not unlike Oleski's flying a Ukrainian flag 
in, Russian occupi- in a Russian-occupied village. When we return to the Lord, we take responsibility for what we have done wrong, and we strive to make it right. That's kind of raising a flag and declaring where we stand. Now, here in occupied territory, the enemy would have us do wrong, and the enemy would have us never take responsibility for it. In fact, one of the wrongs the enemy would have us do is to blame others for the wrongs that we ourselves have done. And there are many, many examples of this around us. Uh, Think of the bureaucratic language of mistakes were made, you know. Uh, That sounds like an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, but it actually um, kind of obscures uh, the perpetrator behind the passive voice. You never know exactly who it was who made the mistake. Or think of the, uh, the celebrity, the actor, the athlete whose boorish or abusive behavior is called out, and then they respond publicly on Twitter by saying, I'm sorry if you were offended. That's not an apology either. That's Actually, that's an accusation. That's saying your feelings are a little too tender. Uh, or we can think of politicians who uh, are so shameless that no amount of moral outrage can get in their way. They just kind of bulldoze through uh, the outrage and keep on doing the things that they do. But the book that we're reading uh, in our Wednesday night uh, book club, and it's titled On Repentance and Repair by Daniel Rutenberg, It wants us to raise a flag here in occupied territory by acknowledging what we have done wrong in a forthright manner and promising to do it right. This shows whose side we're on in a world that is still under the enemy's power. And she says, here's how you do it. You do these five things if you want to do this right. Number one, you name and own the harm you've done. You don't talk about mistakes were made. You say, I made a mistake. I made this mistake. That's repenting. Number two, you start to change your behavior. Okay? That's the second meaning of repentance. Number three, you accept the consequences for the wrong that you have done, and you make amends for the wrong you've done in a way that is fitting, so that uh, your penance fits the crime. Number four, you apologize. Uh, And a valid apology is not, I'm sorry if you were offended. A valid apology is, I'm sorry. Period. Period. And number five, if you are presented with a similar opportunity to do wrong again, you pass on that opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, because temptation has a way of finding you again and again and again. Do these things. And people will know who you are and whose you are. People will know where your loyalties lie. Now, if you do these things, it's kind of like flying a Ukrainian flag in eastern Ukraine. There is a risk to be run. You may pay a price. But that's what it means to repent. That's what it means to turn around and to acknowledge who owns this world in which we live. Now, you may be called to do more than just raise a flag. You may be called to be a partisan in the kingdom's war against the forces of evil. You may be called to blow a few things up. 
Not railroad tracks and bridges, I don't think. Um, but you may be called to metaphorically blow a few things up. And by way of illustrating this, I want to share a little passage from you, from this, with you from this book, Finding God Abiding, by Christine Everly. She lives in Philadelphia, and she is a former campus minister, and she's a, a spiritual writer and retreat leader. And uh, this is a wonderful anecdote from this uh, series of meditations. She says, when I finally landed the job of my dreams in campus ministry, my job was quickly, my joy was quickly tempered. I worked for a priest who eventually was subject to a grand jury investigation. Though not guilty of the appalling chart offenses revealed by the clergy scandal, he nevertheless was found unsuitable for ministry. Red flags were apparent almost at once. I knew I had to do something. But I was conscious of how little credibility I had as a 20-something woman in her first church. Summoning my courage, I wrote a strongly worded appeal to the diocese. I read my letter to a friend who said, you know this may get you fired, right? Into the mailbox it went. It took 10 months and many tense phone calls, but finally there came a Friday when my colleague out of the country on vacation Two priests from the clergy office arrived to interview me and gather evidence. I spent the weekend pacing, soaked in dread, pondering my fate. A quite uncharacteristic thought jogged through my prayer. God, maybe you really are a man, and on their side, and I'm about to lose the job I worked so hard to get. When the call finally came, it was not to announce my dismissal, but to appoint me acting director. My boss was removed from his position effective immediately. Two months later, the archdiocese assigned a genuine, faith-filled priest to the position, and we had a wonderful collaboration for the next ten years. Now, sometimes partisans bring down the bridge or blow up the railroad tracks, and they are celebrated by their fellow patriots. And sometimes they're caught in the act, and the enemy makes them pay a price. But the enemy's days are numbered. The counteroffensive is underway. Don't doubt for a moment that the kingdom of God is coming and that Jesus Christ, who walked among us, will return. Now is the time to decide whose side we're on. We can't win the war on our own, just as Ukrainian partisans and rebels can't win the war on their own, but by telling the truth, both about ourselves and about what we see going on around us, we can harass the enemy until the reign of God is reestablished over this good world that God has created. In the name of the one who is and who was and who is to come, amen. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast so that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. To support our ministry, go to www.haddonfieldprez.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the page. Grace and peace be with you.